Hi there, and welcome to the What on Earth podcast series. I'm Natalie, and I'm joined by my co-host Annie, and we're here to talk about all things climate change and what on earth to do about it. Our guest today is geoscientist and lover of the outdoors and adventure sports, Nick Russell. Nick co-founded a number of specialist weather forecast websites, the most popular being snowforecast.com. In this episode, Nick shares his first-hand experience of the effects climate change is having, both at an environmental level and on communities. He also discusses an exciting new project he's working on, which involves using natural methods to absorb carbon dioxide. A fascinating conversation helping us to make sense of carbon sequestration, and we love that he joined us from his van in Wales. What a great setup. Hi, Nick, and welcome to the podcast. We're so excited to have you here with us today. Um, so to begin with, we would just love to know a bit more about your personal journey with climate change and sort of where you're, where you're up to now. Yeah, hi, and, th- and thanks for inviting me. It's a, it's a real privilege to be able to share some of my journey and my thoughts on, on this really interesting subject. So, um, yeah, I've, I've always been someone that's grown up around nature and I love being outdoors so I've kind of styled my career to enable me to do that and uh, so I started out training as a geologist in the mining industry and um, then later on went to co-found some websites that predict the weather conditions for outdoor sports like skiing and surfing and I also love photography so I'm incredibly fortunate to live where I do in South Wales and be able to blend all of the things that I love doing and that I'm good at into my work. So there's a, there's a bit of a blurry line between the two. But what this has meant is that being outside and having the chance to visit an incredible number of different countries, that I have seen a lot of changes in the 25 years or so that I've been doing that. And a lot of changes have been physical ones and a lot have been cultural ones. But the driver behind those has been changes in the climate. Wow, that's so interesting. And do you do you have any kind of memory of the first time that it sort of stimulated or triggered a response in you to want to react to climate change? I think um, I've got two young daughters. Uh, the oldest is 10 years old. And I think when, when you have children, you suddenly become much more empathetic and aware of their future and uh, you know and suddenly you think well what sort of legacy will our generation leave for them and what what can we do now that that will make it better or even survivable and uh, so that was that was one thing and then prior to that we've been involved in some surveying and measurement of climate on various research projects around the world and again that made me delve deeper into the science and actually seeing physical manifestations of climate change and seeing how it affects people's lives makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable and then you think well I I want to know more about this and I want to be aware of things I can do to help. Thanks Nick it sounds like you've had a really fascinating background and experience especially being fortunate enough to travel so much And so what on earth are the differences in climate change from one continent to another that you've noticed? Okay, well, um, let's start with one that's very close to my heart. And in in the late 1980s, I went to the Arctic. I went to Greenland 
and that was partially to check it out and partially to do a photographic assignment and I went to a tiny remote island off the east coast and uh, it wasn't anything like I expected it was a, a really rugged beautiful place it wasn't green as the name suggests but it also wasn't completely covered in snow and ice and uh, it was actually quite beautiful in in the way that there was this short summer season where nature was flourishing so there were lots of cotton plants the amazing 24-hour daylight and the, the northern lights at night it was really great and I had the opportunity to stay with some of the Inuit hunters that make this their home and uh, there are only about 50 of their little wooden huts on this island and their traditions they, they just embrace visitors as if you're one of their family and they invite you in and so having the chance to spend some time with these people you, you start to learn about their traditions and also how things are changing and so the Inuit are hunters by nature but I was aware that oh I became aware that they weren't able to do the things that they'd always been doing for generation which is going on big expeditions out onto the ice cap going out in their boats in, in the sea during the summer or crossing the frozen fjords in the winter and that's either to get supplies or visit neighboring communities or to actually go hunting on the ice and because the summers are getting longer and the winters are getting shorter and the sea ice was freezing later in the year their sustainable lifestyle was totally changing and um so they the other thing was that uh, they've got the elders in their villages who are the respected pillars of their communities and they their culture revolves around nature, observing the sky and the sea and the animals and the ice. And they have learned how to predict the weather. And they would teach the younger generation how they predict the weather and how they can carry out their traditions of hunting and living in those conditions. But now they can't predict the weather because it's just all crazy, everything's changing. And so you've got this situation where the, the elders are feeling disconnected and confused and the younger people don't have that bond with them and so they're feeling culturally isolated and the very sad thing is that you go to this beautiful place but then you dig beneath the surface and you you learn these things and you find that um you've got big problems with alcoholism drug abuse uh, this loss of cultural identity that i mentioned just causes it all to break down and then layer on that the fact that mobile phones and the internet are coming into their culture that they really don't know what they're doing and they're not getting much guidance you know they, they get subsidies and those get misspent on things that aren't good for them well so it seems like not only is there an environmental impact that climate change is having but a cultural one also very much so so yeah that cultural thing affects their subsistence lifestyle and they really don't have a solution so that's a that's a very profound observation on one culture and then a few years later i went to alaska and i was doing a mapping project in a very very small remote um, township called Huslia. and these are native indian people and very much like the inuit they are hunters but there are a lot more changes in their environment than just the ice. So because it's an area of permafrost, we were seeing things like um, 
lakes just disappearing and being replaced by great clusters of willow trees in the summer spruce trees wilting due to extreme heat and again their culture and, and their lifestyle revolves around nature so the coming and going of migrating caribou salmon fisheries uh, and all that is changing and they can't rely on that anymore and then layer on top of that you've got predators like bears they're coming closer to villages and actually threatening the human habitation because they can't find their food so you again you've got this shift in the landscape the geography and the lives of the people that live there so how can we travel more responsibly and what do you think we can do to lessen our impact? I know you do some work in that area through your snow forecasting. Yeah, that's right. So with our websites, we, we've written some algorithms for predicting where the best conditions are. And that was partially driven by the fact when we were students, we didn't have an awful lot of money and we wanted to know where was the closest place we could go for no money. And um, we like to think that if you're a surfer, you could save a trip by using our service and not going if the conditions aren't good. And um, we think that can help in that way. But we've also, being involved in that sector, been aware that we can help to spread a message of how to travel to places without necessarily getting on a plane or staying local or I could say things like the, the snow train, but there was the sad news last week that the train across Europe to the Alps has now stopped operating. So that was a, a very uh, low carbon way of getting a lot of people to the mountains. And that's, that's not no longer happening. And when we are in these locations, what are some things we should be aware of to lessen our, our impact that we have? Um, well, the reminders are all around us when we get there because we see roads collapsing and cracking up because the slopes are failing and we see some ski resorts failing to operate anymore just because they don't get enough snow or the season is too short to actually operate. So I think one of the things we can do is looking at how we consume to actually do those pastimes. So um, you know, do we need to buy new ski gear every year? Do we need to buy the latest set of skis just because they're a different design? Uh, so, and and those those um, products are you know they're all made from petrol. They they have a impact on the environment. So that that's one thing we could do. Um, again, looking for trips, which doing fewer trips but closer to home, maybe. Right. So it's it's uh, it's been really interesting hearing about the kind of storytelling that you've mentioned, I think, because these sorts of things you talk about to me, they feel so distant and far away. And the sorts of things that you see about on the news or a feature in National Geographic or something. And so it's it's really fascinating to hear you talk about having those experiences firsthand. You've, you've referenced science quite a bit, and I'm interested to know what sort of projects you're working on where you can utilise science to combat climate change. Yeah, sure. Actually, just going back to your last question very quickly, there is one other thing. Um, we partner with a charity called Protect Our Winters, POW, which is set up by Jeremy Jones in the States, and they've got regional um, op operations in different countries. So we give a lot of exposure to that charity through our website and our traffic and they their purpose their mission is to encourage people just to do things 
while they're not skiing and and also to educate people in climate change and the impact of what we do so um, again lending our voice to to help promote that of, of good causes on the climate sector so um, that's one other way even though we're not in the mountains we can do it every day great what was the name of that again the pow pow protect our winters and then if you're a surfer of course surfers against sewage is uh, isn't just about clean water it's about the whole environment so i think those partnerships are really important and we'll make sure we link everything in the show notes brilliant great yeah so going back to your question on science um so my my business which is called teradat we're a consultancy that carries out mapping of the subsurface without actually having to dig anything up. Um, we use a technique called geophysics, which you might be familiar with if you watch Time Team on Channel 4, where Baldrick off Blackadder calls it geophys, and they go and scan the ground and they can find lost cities and buildings. So we, we've one of the things we do is use that technology to look at things in the ground that could be indicators of climate change. And I'm referring specifically to a, a pan-European study that we were a part of um, in the early 90s, and that was called PACE, Permafrost and Climate in Europe. And that involved sinking some deep boreholes in high mountain regions and monitoring the temperature in them, and just seeing how that changes over the years, using the first measurements as a benchmark. And then the other thing, that we do is actually doing this geophysics to which we can actually map permafrost. So permafrost is when the ground is frozen all the year round and it's you dig down and you find ice. And as the climate warms up, that deteriorates and starts to break down and you just end up with wet, boggy ground. And geophysics is a very effectively effective way of without harming the surface of seeing below the ground in the top 30 40 meters or so where that permafrost actually exists so we had some study sites in um, the sierra nevada in spain um, which is weird because you don't expect to be able to overlook the mediterranean and see permafrost but you can and uh, a few ski resorts in the alps and then some sites in arctic norway as well and we've been going back over the years and actually repeating those measurements and looking at the changes. Wow, that's a, that honestly sounds like magic. <laughs> that sounds great. And so do you think that working on projects like that, how do you think we can sort of make it relatable to the everyday person and make it understandable? Well, they form part of the big picture of data sets, which just show alarming trends in climate data and you know none of them get any better and the more you look at the existing data it could actually be worse than it really is as it's presented so um, i think it's you know we, we're monitoring where permafrost is changing and where temperatures are arising and loads of other people are doing that as well but it's really educating people in what those numbers actually mean. What is the impact of a one and a half degree rise in global temperatures? What happens after this critical two degree change? And, um, and then something else which isn't greatly known by people is going back to permafrost again and Arctic regions. So it's kind of linking the work we've been doing in the Alps with my time spent in the Arctic is the effects of methane gas being released in those regions by the steady thawing of this permafrost. And that could lead to this catastrophic release of methane gas, which is also 
a significant greenhouse gas and that could just tip all the models you know that, like Malcolm Gladwell said that could be a tipping point for climate change and it would be uncontrollable runaway climate change and to me that's you know that's very scary and again a story that needs to be told. Yeah that does sound very scary but I know you are working on some more positive projects well hopefully will have a positive impact such as um, looking at natural methods to absorb carbon dioxide and it sounds like it could be potentially game-changing. Yeah that's a really exciting project and a very current one because I was working on it last week Um, so let me explain why. Um, Part of my job for the this year and the previous year is with the, the Royal Society in London and they've got this program called Entrepreneurs in Residence and I was incredibly fortunate to be accepted to work between the Royal Society and Exeter University to help um, a, a course called Engineering and Entrepreneurship. So I'm able to inject my enthusiasm for things that I know how to do like mapping and uh, business and growth through entrepreneurship and then also circular economies and climate change and uh, the project i'm talking about that i worked on last week was a thing called iCure and that's a fund from the british government that aims to encourage brilliant innovation in british universities and spin them out into commercial ventures that could grow and make a real difference and uh, you know they're not all related to the climate a lot of them increasingly are you know, a lot of them for drug testing and illnesses or advances in electronics but this particular project i was on is um, a way of measuring carbon dioxide at ground level continuously in real time to a great degree of accuracy and uh, when i first heard about it i thought well measuring co2 isn't that difficult which is true but what is difficult is measuring it over large areas and this is where the application to nature-based carbon dioxide and carbon sequestration comes in because when this is carried out at the moment it can take five to ten years to actually gauge the impact of those projects so you might have to wait that long to then say oh if we did it slightly differently and optimized it it would work or it would be even better but this system is uh, it's affordable and accurate and fast so that's those are the three main things and nobody else has really solved this problem it's a combination of uh, weather measurements complex science and scalable sensors so if you had for example a farming project in the united states and they would look at uh, organic soil science so using the microbes in the soil to absorb co2 this system could actually be rolled out over the farm and give real-time feedback on how effective that is. If you're uh, um, trying to put CO2 back into the ground through boreholes and into mine workings, again, you'd be able to see where it's leaking out or how well and effectively it's being stored. So um, it's great. the good news is that this project got through the first stage and uh, it's now on a, a market testing and validation phase and then beyond that it'll get further investment to actually become a spin-out company and um, part of that validation is linking up with big global operators like oil companies and energy companies wow. and uh, you know wind operators and farmers and just seeing if they're willing to test this technology 
And so the big benefit is you, it could be scaled to a global network of real-time CO2 sensors and really make a positive impact on how effective nature-based carbon reabsorption um, efforts can be. That's really fascinating and it sounds really promising and especially because it's got so much backing behind it. Yeah, that, that's the really great thing. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert in the science of that. I understand how it works and I understand how it can be applied. But my role, which I really love, is the fact that I'm bridging between the world and commerce as a whole and these academics who, as I said, have got brilliant science. But... They're very good at communicating to other academics, but not conveying that message in a relevant context that could could get the attention to all these potential future stakeholders and people that could use it. And uh, so that was that's really the aim of this IQA project from the government Innovate UK is to train these academics in how to really how to sell their research and commercialise it. And that's one of the things that we're trying to achieve with this podcast is sort of making it relatable and breaking down things. So are you able to explain what carbon sequestration is? Yeah, exactly. So um, if you're a, a producer of CO2, and we all are, you know, we, we consume food, which has a footprint, we drive vehicles, we travel on planes. But if you're a factory, you also produce those on a much greater scale. So what can you do to offset that carbon offsetting is doing things to reduce your impact and that could be planting trees you know there's a lot of companies that plant trees um, airlines do it clothing companies do it and they need to and those trees absorb co2 they they remove it from the atmosphere and that's a good thing so this research effectively measures that um, and another way is, as I said, soil science, organic soil science, and using microbes to absorb CO2 into the soil. So this process of absorption and removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and storing it somewhere else is carbon sequestration. I hope, I hope that made sense. It did. It was very helpful. Um, I was actually just going to ask, so obviously during the current climate that we're in, in this pandemic, the sort of buzzword is that we're we're going into a new normal and do you think that there will be a shift towards prioritizing sustainability and what do you think that that should actually look like well I think um, the fact that Halfords have sold out of bikes is a sign that more and more people have been spending their time getting out and not driving as much Uh, so that's a good thing and small things like that need to be sustained Um, I think on the bigger scale I, it, there's a lot of very interesting articles being written in the press at the moment about the efforts of governments to try and jumpstart their economies by ploughing huge amounts of money to get factories working and to get in industry rolling again and to get people consuming and buying. And to me, that seems like a short-term solution. You know, wh- why can't the money be being put into factories to start up again? be put into a slightly different thing and say well start up but do it in a more efficient way that consumes less or is less harmful to the environment and uh, if that gets overlooked this once in a lifetime opportunity is going to be missed and and that's that's what I think is really sad 
Um, I know the British government announced something last week about uh, grants for making homes more energy efficient, which is great. And that will also mean that those suppliers can um, can get working to produce those materials and those solutions. But is that enough or is it too little too late or is it only going to be, you know, will it, is it available to me here in Wales? I don't know. So there's that thing between uh, buzzwords and good press for governments and then actually doing things that make a difference. Brilliant. Thank you. So could you share with our listeners an action they can take today or a piece of advice for us all to start tackling climate change and make a difference? Sure. I, I Rather than just say one thing, because it's hard to do one thing and you could do it for a bit and then you forget about it or it just becomes difficult to do. So I, I'm a big supporter of incremental change and just doing little steps every day. You know, if, if we did 1% better each day at something, then by the end of a year, it'll become a huge change. And uh, there's a quote from a, I think it's an American entrepreneur called Jim Rohn. And he said, your life doesn't get better by chance. It gets better by change. And that's a really good thing to focus on when you think, okay, what little changes could I make every day that would be would help to make our environment and the, the environment for future generations better? And it could be simple things like not putting the dishwasher on when you absolutely don't have to, saving one wash cycle. It could be not taking a car journey that you don't need to, to take. Or it could be just simply reading something, reading a news article or a blog about climate change or about the adverse side of it. And that just instills in you more conscientiousness and awareness. And then you're going to tell other people. So having conversations. So just doing little things like that on that theme or, or anything is a great way to easily end up by making a big difference. And that's just one person. If everybody did that or most people did it, then we really could be in a position to do some really exciting things. I love that. I, I always try and remind myself of that when I'm trying to make changes that just multiply it by millions of people because you can feel powerless. But I think when you kind of think about your impact and then inspiring other people to make those changes as well, collectively, we're actually really powerful and, and we, we can create a lot of change and I hope that we do and especially coming out of this pandemic precisely yeah I think that's that's the message and I really I think your things like your podcast and everyone that listens to it you know if they just take away one little thing that that, that resonates with them from that and tells another person that's a small step in making a very big change and I think also what you said around having the conversations around it and we need to be having more conversations around it and putting it out there more for others. So I think talking conversations also really help people to make change. Exactly. And, you know, conversations aren't always about news articles because those are not always representative or most of the time aren't representative of what you really need to know. So look for other places, look for other sources of inspiration. We loved chatting with Nick today and hearing about some incredibly moving and thought-provoking stories that he has to share from his global travels. It's also really exciting to hear about the projects that he's working on. And with his help, I now know what carbon sequestration is all about. We hope you enjoyed it too, and we'll link everything in the show notes for you. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of What on Earth with Annie and Natalie. Make sure to rate, review and subscribe to our podcast and get in touch as we'd love to know what on earth confuses you when it comes to climate change. On next week's show, we chat to beauty industry expert and founder of Evolve Beauty, Laura Rudeau.